Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're taking an anything goes attitude and bringing you one of our no holds barred wild cards editions of the show. Um, if you've heard one of our wild cards shows before, you probably know things can go pretty much anywhere. And that's precisely what we're going to do this week. We'll take you to a sandbox for grown-ups in an army lab at Fort Belvoir. That's an actual mine. So when you say that's an actual mine, you mean... No, there's no explosive in there. Okay. Sorry. No, no, no. That's an inert mine. And we'll trek out to a theater in the tiny town of Onancock, Virginia. I thought, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see who's still around in 10 years. Mm-hmm. And here we are. And we are the ones who are still around. We'll even visit a massive warehouse in Landover, Maryland. A warehouse that's sheltering some pretty important American history. Yeah, this is textiles. It looks to be a velvet jacket. But before we head to any of those spots, we're going to turn the microphone over to you. Earlier this week, we hit the streets to ask Washingtonians a very important question. What's the wildest thing you've ever done? Oh, I can't answer that. <laughs> Not on the radio. Oh, there's so many. I don't know that I want them on the air. Hitchhiking in the Alps together with a girlfriend when I was young. Oh, my God. (laughs) Naked mud fight in Regensburg, Germany with two friends and 25 strangers. I have no idea. I can't even say the stuff I say. For real, I can't say that. Think I love you. The wildest thing I've ever done was riding a bicycle from San Francisco to D.C. when I was 19. Left the country and didn't tell my parents. Uh, I moved to England, like, overnight. Oh, man, the wildest thing I've ever done? I don't know. I I think, uh, I remember when I was a little boy, right, uh, I jumped on the side of an ice cream truck while it was rolling. Those were Washingtonians speaking earlier this week with Metro Connections' Lauren Landau. All right, so our first official stop on this wild tour of Washington is that warehouse we just mentioned. But before we head out there, um, a bit of background. So you no doubt remember a certain weather pattern we dealt with last fall, a certain superstorm named Sandy. Well, while our region felt some of Sandy's wrath, the New York area got hit hard. Homeowners there are still dealing with flooding, as are two of New York City's iconic islands, Liberty Island, where you can find the Statue of Liberty, and Ellis Island, the gateway to the U.S. for millions of immigrants and the home of multitudes of historic artifacts. Turns out a Washingtonian led the effort to save those artifacts from the floodwaters. Emily Berman brings us the story on how those artifacts, all one million of them, wound up in our region. For most of the year, Bob Sonderman manages a museum storage facility in Prince George's County. But when duty calls, he can be on the road in a matter of hours. And I pack my van full of everything I can possibly think of. So I have big blower fans. I have a generator. I have uh, petrol. Sonderman is the head of the National Park Service Museum Emergency Response Team. And basically, what an EMT does in a medical emergency... Sonderman does in a museum emergency. So our job is to go out to assess damage and to do whatever triage and whatever immediate response we can do with the available supplies that we have. Wherever there's a park in need, the rescue squad is there. So I've done Isabel, Ivan, Katrina, spent a long time on Katrina, the Gulf oil spill, and then this. 
Diana Pardue is the chief of the museum division at the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. She's been taking the ferry to her office every day since the late 80s. During Hurricane or Superstorm Sandy, there was apparently a large wave that came through New York Harbor, and it swept over the backside of Ellis Island and went through the building we call the powerhouse. The storm surge knocked out lower-level windows, doors, and flooded the basements of Ellis's main buildings. The HVAC, the boilers, the electrical lines, everything is, in the, is essentially in the basement. So that got overwashed with salt water. And salt water and wiring don't work. Most of the museum's collection was on upper floors, away from the water, but everything below was covered in silt. The initial response is, holy cow, I didn't realize it was going to be this bad. All the objects were covered in in gook and, and salty, ooky water, and they're still in the exhibit cases. A display case of medical equipment used to examine incoming immigrants was knocked to its side and filled with silt. The artifacts were metal and would begin to rust if they weren't taken out soon. So Sonderman got the crowbars out of his van and cracked open the display cases to get these objects out. We're the best break-in crew that you've ever <laughs> you've ever seen. Um, so we'd break into the cabinets and we salvage the collection. Every item was treated differently. The team sent the medical instruments to metals conservators in West Virginia. They froze all the wet documents to stop mold growth, and everything else needed to be put by a fan to dry off. But the island, and actually a lot of New York City, didn't have power. In order to preserve the artifacts, they'd need a dry, stable environment. It's not like we're going to move your nation's patrimony into some nondescript warehouse in New Jersey somewhere. A random warehouse? No. But what they did need was a pristine, climate-controlled, pest-free facility that would be big enough for a million new objects. In other words, Sonderman's facility in Landover, Maryland. Let's take a look at this. So you have um, an archivally stable box within an archivally stable box with tissue paper, Ziploc polyethylene bags. It looks like this might have been... A cigarette case. Huh, that's pretty interesting. In another box, we see heavy, dark blue fabric. That's something. Yeah, this is textiles. It looks to be a velvet jacket. Some of the most fragile things, like tape of oral histories and x-rays of passengers as they came off the ships, those are in a different room. Whoa, it's really cold. Yeah. In here is um, just about 35 degrees. It's just almost perfect for the storage of film-based products. Whether freezing cold or kept at a comfortable 68 degrees, all the items are organized by the way they were exhibited or stored in the museum on Ellis Island. We organize it in a way to make it easy to return it because it will go back someday. Someday, but not anytime soon. President Obama signed the Sandy Recovery Act, designating $234 million to the national parks impacted by the storm. There's still no running water and no electricity on the island. And Diana Pardue says the museum will be closed for renovations through the rest of the year. In the meantime, Sonderman says, the island's collection will stay here in Maryland until the job is done. I'm Emily Berman. You can see photos of Bob Sonderman and the Museum Emergency Response Team in action on our website, metroconnection.org.
We're going to turn now from one of the country's most famous national parks to a national park that doesn't yet exist. This weekend marks a century since the death of Harriet Tubman. For the first 30 years of her life, the Underground Railroad conductor lived as a slave on Maryland's eastern shore. It's been more than a decade since efforts began to establish a national historic park in her honor. And while that legislation has stalled in Congress, a new state park is breaking ground. Jacob Fenston paid a visit to Tubman's hometown in Dorchester County to check out the site of the soon-to-be park. A lot has changed since the 1820s when Harriet Tubman was growing up in Dorchester County. But many families here have ties that go back and back and back. My father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather were farmers in the Dorchester County area. Donald Pinder is president of the Harriet Tubman Organization, which runs a small museum in Cambridge. He's traced his local roots all the way back to the early and mid-1800s and found free ancestors, as well as enslaved, living just a couple miles from Harriet Tubman. They may even have crossed paths. A lot of people would have done the same thing that Harriet Tubman done, but Harriet, she repeated this. Most people would have escaped, resettled their lives, and moved on. We still don't know exactly how many times she came back to this area, but we do know that she kept coming and got family members and friends, anyone who was willing. Clara Small teaches African-American history at Salisbury University. She says Tubman returned to Maryland between 13 and 19 times, helping hundreds escape to freedom. Harriet is one of my favorite individuals. I call her my personal shero. She's so much a part of what I study, and she's so much a part of this area that, to me, she's still alive. Small says even though Harriet Tubman is a household name, her contributions have yet to be properly recognized. But since at least the mid-90s, locals on the eastern shore have been lobbying for broader official recognition. In the year 2000, the National Park Service started studying the potential for a park in Tubman's honor. Mike Litterst with the National Park Service says the agency recommended creating new parks in both Maryland and in Auburn, New York, where Tubman lived later in life. So there has been legislation before Congress in the 111th in the 112th Congresses, National Park Service testified in support of, of those bills both times. Congress failed to act both of those times. If we get it authorized this year, I'll put it in the federal checkbook. U.S. Senator Barbara Mikulski of Maryland, along with the state's other senator, Ben Cardin, reintroduced the legislation earlier this year. If we have a park to birds and bees... We ought to have a park to Harriet Tubman. Supporters of the National Park Plan were hoping it would be in the works by this weekend in time for centennial celebrations. But it's not, so state officials have decided to go it alone for the time being. Glenn Carawan is with the Maryland Department of Natural Resources. Yeah, the state park decided to move ahead. We're still unsure if the national historical parks are going to become reality or not. I met Carawan at the future site of the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center. The great thing about this is that the area really hasn't changed that much. When you drive around Dorchester County, the landscapes are almost identical with the exception of the paved highways and electric lines and that sort of thing that Harriet Tubman would have seen during her time here. State officials will break ground on the visitor center this weekend. Carawan says it's expected to open in January 2015 and could see as many as 100,000 visitors a year. The county already experiences some amount of Tubman tourism. There's a driving tour, 
part of which I went on with County Tourism Director Amanda Fenstermaker. There are 22 sites that are going to be officially marked. And there's a new audio tour. When Harriet arrived, she peered in the window, saw a slave and his overseer inside. And there are local tour guides like Susan Meredith, who makes a living offering historical Harriet Tubman tours by bike or kayak. The farm that she was born on is right down the road within less than a half a mile. It has a marker there. Meredith and her husband own a tiny general store here that they've turned into a museum. America's a young, very young country. We're very I think pretty close to the people that were uh, history makers here. But as a nation, we haven't memorialized our history equally. Supporters of a Tubman National Park point out that relatively few monuments are currently dedicated to anyone other than white men. Mike Litterst with the National Park Service says that's something the Obama administration is trying to change. There are approximately 80,000 properties on the National Register of Historic Places, uh, which is administered by the National Park Service, and a very, very small percent, less than 10 percent, of those are dedicated to minorities or to women. While Congress may never get around to dedicating a park in Tubman's honor, there is another possible route. President Obama could create one by presidential proclamation. That's how the most recent national park was born, when Obama established the Cesar Chavez National Monument in California last October. I'm Jacob Fenston. To see pictures of the new park site and to find out how you can take your own tour of the Underground Railroad, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back, Obamacare 101. Something of this magnitude has never been done before. We'll get the lowdown on how the Affordable Care Act is likely to affect D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today our theme is wild cards, and um, just to prove how wild and impulsive we truly are, we're now going to discuss zoning rules. Yeah, that's right, zoning rules. But stay with us, seriously, because these zoning rules are about to be a pretty hot topic here in the district. And joining us now to explain it all is WAMU transportation reporter Martin DeCaro. Hi, Martin. Hello, Rebecca. All right, Martin, let's talk zoning, though I understand that what we're really talking about here is zoning as it relates to parking. So tell us, What is going on with parking in the district? This is a very controversial issue and a very important one. The short answer is that the City Zoning Commission is looking at a proposal to eliminate mandatory parking space minimums in new development. Exactly what we're talking about here is new development near transit stations and in downtown D.C. So what, is, what does that mean exactly? Can you, can you give an example? Sure. Let's say Rebecca Shear Property Developers <laughs> builds a condo high-rise in downtown D.C. or near a metro station. If this zoning change gets approved, you would not have to build underground parking spaces for your tenants. 
Okay, first off, I would probably want to choose a more creative name for my company. But um, second, wouldn't some people say that the city is growing and a lot of newcomers might have cars and they don't want to circle around the blocks looking for parking spaces? Well, that's one argument that's being made against this zoning change. Here's Lon Anderson, a spokesman for AAA Mid-Atlantic. If we make parking such a challenge, so restrictive that you can't find curbside parking, you know, we have great restaurants in Tyson's Corner and Bethesda. There's lots of other places that people can go. They can choose not to come here. Businesses can choose not to locate in Washington, D.C. All right. So what is the other side saying? Now, the other side includes the city's planning director, Harriet Tregoning. She's the one who proposed this change. She says her goal is not to make driving more difficult. It's to make D.C. less car dependent by giving people options to get around, biking, walking, and taking the bus or train. The national average uh, household spends 19% of household income on transportation. In the district, uh, in areas well served by transit, our number is more like 9% of household income. So part of what makes it affordable to be in the district is the ability to dial down your transportation costs. So we happen to think lots of choices is a good thing. So Tregoning says her plan will allow the market to decide. That's the most important piece of this. The marketplace will decide. If a developer wants to build an underground parking garage, the developer will still have that choice. If you're building a retail outlet or a retail building, you will have an opportunity to build parking for customers. Tregoning points to places where too much parking was built as a result of these current mandatory minimums, like the D.C. USA Shopping Center in Columbia Heights. Many of them are finding that they have parking that they can't get rid of, that they don't know what to do with, and that's really a stranded asset. All right, so Martin, we should point out that we are having this conversation right now in the WAMU studios on Brandywine Street, Northwest. And right across the street from us, we have a parking-free building coming to our neighborhood. Can you tell us about that project? Right. On the other side of Wisconsin Avenue, a developer got an exemption from the parking rules for the site of the old Babe's Billiards Cafe. Douglas Development is planning to build a mixed-use residential and retail space with 40 apartment units and no parking. Now, the plan is to market those units to people without cars, naturally, because the new building will be two blocks from the Tenleytown metro station. Here's Cheryl Court, the policy director at the Coalition for Smarter Growth, which supports the zoning change. When they, the Zoning Commission looked at this site and DDOT did some analysis, they found that there was a lot of availability of both on-street parking and off-street parking. There's actually hundreds of parking spaces right around uh, this metro station that are, go dark at night. She says instead of automatically building more spaces, the district can make better use of the ones already built. She says by requiring developers to build mandatory minimum number of spaces, a lot of those parking spaces go unused. It's wasteful and it drives up the cost of housing. And everyone in an apartment building has to subsidize that cost. All right. But just to clarify, are we saying that ultimately D.C. officials want fewer cars in the district? They want fewer car owners. Now, 39% of district households are car-free as it is. So the city's growing. More people are living here. New development is springing up everywhere. Everywhere you go, you see the cranes in the air. So by eliminating parking minimums, people like Harriet Tregoning hope when residents do need to drive, they'll take advantage of car-sharing services like Zipcar or Car2Go. But I'm guessing the folks at AAA have an issue with that argument, right? Yes, AAA's Lon Anderson says, even if a developer builds in a transit-rich area, whether it's residential or retail... 
Some people will still want to drive there and park there. Are you going to have any visitors who might drive there to visit you? How about your mom and dad? Are they going to be coming in? And do they live locally? Or are they going to be driving in? And if so, where are they going to park? Are they going to park in WAMU's parking in front of WAMU? It's important to emphasize again that if this change is approved, we'll not see the end of parking in D.C. It'll be up to each developer. Here's Cheryl Court of the Coalition for Smarter Growth again. Rather than having the government tell the private sector how many parking spaces to build, we think it's better for the developer to figure out how it best wants to market those units. In the case of off-street parking just going underutilized, I mean, that's just a tremendous waste of uh, expense. Um, a f- a $40,000 parking space is a, is a huge expense that could have gone to making the project more feasible, more affordable. Wait, did you just say a $40,000 parking space? Yes, the cost of building underground parking is enormous, at least 40000 per space, often more than that. And that's one reason why developers like this idea. And as mentioned, why supporters of the zoning change say forcing developers to build mandatory minimums, regardless of the demand for parking in a certain neighborhood, is wasteful. So, Martin, when will D.C. actually make a decision on this proposed change? The proposal will go before the Zoning Commission within the next few weeks, and a final decision could come as soon as this spring. Well, Martin DeCaro, thank you so much for joining us and uh, bringing us up to speed on this issue. You're welcome. And we're curious, how do you think D.C. should handle parking at new developments in the city? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. So last month, you might remember on our chemistry show, we brought you to Virginia's Fort Belvoir, where civilian scientists are using chemistry to protect soldiers from explosives. Well, we wanted to learn more about some of the technology these scientists are developing. As Matt M. Casey tells us, developing tools to find hidden explosives isn't exactly child's play, but it does involve a version of an old playground favorite, the sandbox. Every day, American soldiers use machines to find and neutralize mines in war-torn areas. Most of those devices make the transition from good idea to usable tool just outside of Washington, D.C. Just come on in to our uh, massive sandbox here. That's Aaron LaPointe, a researcher with the Army's Night Vision and Electronic Sensor Directorate, inviting us into the directorate's mine lane facility. From the outside, the building looks like a large, long utility shed with a small attached greenhouse. On the inside, 60-foot-long sandboxes hold six different colors of dirt. Near the door, a table holds an intimidating array of simulated mines. We have different target sets, different types of targets, where there's this artillery shell here. Uh, we have different types of rocks, uh, different types of actual targets, clutter. Um, that's an actual mine, right? That's a anti-tank mine. So when you say that's an actual mine, you mean... No, there's no explosive in there. Okay. Sorry. No, no, no. That's an inert mine. Well, that would make that please do not walk on mine lane sign over there just a little <laughs> bit more intimidating. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. To demonstrate why the facility exists, no, LaPointe no and fellow researcher Corey Spill bury a mine in the kind of sand you would find at the beach. Then they sweep a metal detector over so, the surface. As Corey goes along, he's going to sweep it over an area he knows there's no targets in. And as you approach an area, you'll hear a tone or audible difference. That tone indicates that the detector found a small amount of metal. 
Most modern mines, LaPointe says, aren't very metallic, so it can be difficult for a metal detector to differentiate a mine from, say, a buried screw. But that's why this metal detector comes with a built-in ground-penetrating radar. Spill switches the machine to radar mode and scans the area again. So there are two different audible tones. So that way you can, you can verify that, okay, this is a target that needs to be investigated. Whereas something like a paperclip, you wouldn't hear this GPR tone. With this device, LaPointe says, a properly trained soldier can reliably tell the difference between metal clutter and the real threat of a buried mine. While this piece of equipment looks like a typical, though rugged, metal detector, the gear LaPointe's team usually works on looks more like a mess of wires and duct tape. What you're standing in here is our, our playground. We try to close the gap between the fundamental science and that works in a laboratory and then the actual sensor that the guy uses in the field. To help close that gap, the directorate's sandboxes are equipped to replicate hundreds of different soil conditions. Each of the six different types of soil can be soaked and exposed to the sun, kept dark and dry, or arranged at any configuration in between. We do have pipes up lining up and down each lane, and that allows us to adjust moisture content so we can basically spray uh, water, have a lane, a lane that's completely soaked, or if it's you know, just a little bit of water, things like that. Once the team has prepared the sand with any light, water, debris, or rocks, and, of course, simulated mines, an overhead trolley carts experimental equipment over the surface at a walking pace. So we can lower those to the ground, we can move them forward and backward, so we can test things that we buried or put inside the ground at different, different levels. Whether that rig hauls radar, lasers, or advanced metal detectors, this facility provides a first testing ground for concepts that will go on to further development and eventually reach the field, and in significant numbers. Taking that into account, LaPointe says it's hard to see this oversized shed as just a giant sandbox. It's not really just dirt. You know, It may look like that, but uh, there's, there's, we realize the complexity of the problem, so we realize what it can provide us in, in improving the tools that we develop. Thousands of those tools, such as the metal detector demonstrated for this story, have already been shipped to Iraq, Afghanistan, and other conflict zones, helping to protect American soldiers deployed there. I'm Matt M. Casey. So we're calling today's show, of course, Wild Cards, and we'll actually move now to a big wild card that's affecting the entire healthcare industry. It's a piece of legislation called the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, although you might know it by another name, Obamacare. It's almost three years to the day since Congress passed the health reform bill, but many of the law's provisions aren't yet in effect. When the law is finally implemented, the way a lot of us buy health insurance is totally going to change, and it will change in different ways depending on whether you live in D.C., Maryland, or Virginia. Here to help us sort all of this out is reporter David Schultz. David, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. All right, so so break it down for us. What are the big changes coming down the pike? Well, one of the biggest is the creation of these new things called health exchanges. Health exchanges. Okay, what, what are those? All right, so I want you to think about those airline ticket websites, you know, like Priceline. Priceline, like with the William Shatner commercials. I'm on it. Priceline is a teenager. Got a guy. 
Right, right. Who can forget that? So we all know how these websites work. You type in some information, and they give you a list of different flights from a bunch of different airlines. And you can choose which flight works best for you based on price or schedule or whatever. So are you saying then that a health exchange is just like that, only for insurance? Yes. It's a website where you enter in some information. You'll be able to see the prices for a bunch of different health insurance policies from different insurance companies. You'll also be able to see if you're eligible for any health insurance tax credits. You can just put in your income level into the website, and it'll tell you if you qualify for a credit. So with these exchange websites, you'll be able to compare and contrast almost instantly from the comfort of a laptop computer. And if this law works the way lawmakers intended it to, that easy ability to compare will bring down the price of health insurance, at least in theory. It is certainly true that something of this magnitude has never been done before. That's Mila Hoffman, director of the D.C. Health Benefit Exchange Authority. She's basically in charge of the creation of the district's health exchange website. Oh, so the district is going to have its own health exchange. Is is every state going to have one? Well, sort of. And this is where it gets complicated. So stick with me here. All right. So the health reform law said that every state could create its own exchange website if officials wanted to. But if a state doesn't want its own website for whatever reason, then the people in that state would buy their health insurance through an exchange run by the federal government. Right now, there are 26 states where the governors and the legislatures have said, you know what? Nope, we don't want to do this. So the people in those states will all use the federal website. And is Maryland or Virginia one of those states? Virginia is. Virginia actually helped lead the charge against the health reform law, and the lawmakers there don't want to participate in it if they don't have to. All right, so then what's the deal with Maryland? Same situation as D.C. Here's Hoffman. Both Maryland and D.C. made an early decision that we were going to implement the Affordable Care Act fully. Almost from the moment the law passed, both D.C. and Maryland, which of course are both controlled by Democrats, began making plans to create their own health exchange websites. Okay, but but let me ask you, I mean, um, David, ultimately... Why does all this matter? Federal website, local website, why, why does it matter which site I use to buy health insurance? Here's why it might matter. The website run by the Fed is going to be one size fits all. The companies that sell policies through the federal website will have to meet some minimum requirements, but that's it. If a state creates its own website, it can add extra requirements. Can you give an example? So D.C. has a much higher rate of people living with HIV and AIDS than most other states. So D.C. could say to the insurance companies, hey, if you want to sell insurance through our website, you have to cover HIV AIDS medication at a higher level than what you'd have to do in the federal exchange. Now, that's just an example. D.C. hasn't decided if it's going to do that yet, but that's something it could do or that's something that Maryland could do. Virginia can't do that because it doesn't really have much control over its exchange. Okay, that makes sense. But but what about all these websites' potential users? Is this how everyone's going to be buying health insurance from now on? No, and that's a good point. These websites are not for everyone. The only people who will need to use them are people who buy health insurance as individuals. So if you're self-employed or unemployed or people who own small businesses and are buying health insurance for their employees. So if you get your health insurance through your job, you won't need to use these websites. Right, you won't need to. Although actually, Rebecca, there's a tiny quirk in the law here that affects our region big time. So the federal government, obviously very huge. Federal workers would not need to use this website. But for some reason, the law says members of Congress and their staff do have to buy insurance through the website. So if you work for, say, the Department of Agriculture, you won't need to use the exchange website. But if you work for Frank D. Lucas, the Oklahoma Republican who chairs the House Agriculture Committee, you will have to use the website. But ultimately, even if you do use the website or you don't, or if you live in a state that does or doesn't create its own website, this is going to affect you because it's going to have a huge impact on the health insurance industry as a whole. Take this guy, for example. My name is Sam Sahori Ghanem. I'm a broker. Ghanem here is a broker who works with businesses in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia to help them find the right insurer. 
He's been doing this here in the D.C. region for 30 years. All right. So if we go back to our earlier um, travel site comparison, could we say that Ghanem is kind of like a travel agent only for health insurance? Yeah, exactly. He's basically a middleman like a travel agent. And we all know what happened to travel agents after websites like Priceline and Expedia and so on started popping up. They didn't do so well. No, no, they did not. Yeah, those (laughs) sites nearly made the whole travel agent profession go extinct. And Ghanem is really afraid that's what's going to happen to him. I feel like I'm a whip maker or a carriage maker. It's 1901 and I just saw the first car. So I'm a little, I'm a little concerned. You know, normally for people like me, by this time, by our age, we either look to sell our business or pass it on. And I'm afraid there's not going to be much to pass on or we don't know. That's the biggest issue. It's not that we, we, we don't know what the business is going to look like. Wow. Well, I can see how this is really changing the whole industry. But when will we actually start seeing those changes? When when might this go into effect? Well, the websites have to be up and running starting in October. And then the health insurance policies purchased from the sites go into effect on January 1st of 2014. So people will have a few months to shop around on the site and try to get the best deal. Well, David, we'll definitely keep our eye on this one. Uh, But for now, thanks so much for coming and telling us all about it. My pleasure. If you have feedback on how the Affordable Care Act will affect you, your family, or your business, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Facebook. Up next, big-time theater in a very small town. It's been here for 25 or 30 years, tiny, tiny, and now bigger and bigger, and now it's here, and it's just remarkable. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're throwing our usual thematic approach to the wind and bringing you one of our wild cards shows. Coming up, we're going to hit the stage in a very rural corner of Virginia, and we're going to read from your letters. First, though, we're going to meet a woman who bore witness to a major event in world history and, at the age of 77, has written a book all about it. Mother thoroughly dampened her blanket and draped it over us. The terrible explosion seemed to have abated, although hundreds of incendiary bombs had fallen close by, some landing in rubble no more than a dozen yards away. That's D.C. resident Marion Ingram reading from her brand new memoir, The Hands of War, a tale of endurance and hope from a survivor of the Holocaust. As the phosphorus burned and dripped its way through floor after floor, it looked like the lights were being turned on by someone descending methodically through the building. Ingram grew up Jewish in Hamburg, Germany in the late 1930s and early 1940s. And the passage she's reading here recounts the infamous bombing of Hamburg in 1943. I recently visited Ingram at her home in Foggy Bottom to learn more about the book and the bombing, which she says actually miraculously saved her and her family from being sent to the concentration camps. We had gotten a notice to report to the place where um, the Jews were rounded up, a place called the Moorweide by the University of Hamburg and in front of a train station. Uh, My mother tried to commit suicide and I found her and uh, managed to pull her uh, away from 
the gas oven and uh, revived her, or she revived. And uh, the fire bombing, uh, we were not allowed to go into bomb shelters because we were Jews. Uh, we wore the Star of David on our clothing. So we went into hiding uh, for a year and a half for the rest of the war. And... Uh, miraculously survived both uh, the genocide as well as the 10-day and 10-night bombing of civilians. Right off the bat in the book, you refer to yourself as a child of war. In fact, um, the very first line in the book, it's so, it's so poetic, I want to read it right now. As a tree may be forced by fire or lightning to bloom in winter, a child can be compelled to become an adult long before it is time. I was such a child. What are some ways you were forced into adulthood long before it is time, as you say? You know, starting as a five-year-old, I was aware that there were forces who wanted to kill me. And because we were so isolated, because all of my mother's family had already been exterminated, there was no group, there were no children to play with. So I, you start asking yourself as a child, why is this? Why are people trying to kill me? What have I done? Why is being Jewish reason to kill me? All of these things add to the sense that you had to be more grown up than your years would indicate. I was a 10-year-old when the war ended, and I was not a 10-year-old. I don't even know what being a 10-year-old girl is like. I cannot even imagine it. I get it from books. I see it in friends who have daughters. And uh, Daniel and I have two amazing grandsons. But I really also would have liked to have a granddaughter because I wanted to see what it was like to be a girl child. One part of the book that I find I find so very fascinating is the chapter devoted to Uri's story, Uri being, I don't know how to describe him, a rather distinctive fellow Jewish student to whom you, you took quite a shining. What was your motivation for taking a break from your own story for an entire chapter and dedicating that chapter to telling his tale? Because his story was different from mine. His family was killed and remained only Uri and his sister, and he is the more typical Holocaust survivor in as much as he had been in concentration camp and he had suffered an entirely different war than I had. His, in many ways, far more cruel than mine because I wound up at the end of the war. I didn't have any other relatives, but I still had a mother and a father and my two sisters. Uri had no one. Speaking of Uri, there's a very significant passage in the book about a wristwatch. And I notice you are not wearing a wristwatch right now. Can you talk about the meaning of the wristwatch? Yes, I very much wanted a watch. This was post-war, and we were in Blankenese, and in the school set up for children of Bergen-Belsen and uh, some children who had been wandering around Europe. And I actually got a watch. And uh, that was also the time when I was trying to talk to Uri, and he wouldn't talk to me. So one afternoon, I um, 
decided to give Uri my watch to, you know, bribe him into friendship. And uh, Uri took the watch, looked at it, and uh, threw it on the ground and stomped on it. And uh, for some reason it just impressed me to no end. You know, my eyes were popped wide open, and I'm thinking that at that moment I really loved Uri. Uri later told you the full story yes. as to why he reacted so strongly. Can yes. you can you share that? Well, that's that's when Uri began to talk to me about his experiences and his story. And one of the reasons he said that, that he didn't want a watch is because everything was was done by the watch, and the only people who had watches were the guards and the people in charge. And anybody who ever had a watch it were, it was confiscated, so nobody had watches except the people who imprisoned us. You haven't worn one since? No, I've not worn a watch since, and I do not intend to wear one, and I don't want anybody to give me one either. <laughs> Marion Ingram is the author of The Hands of War, just out from Skyhorse Publishing. You can hear Marion reading some more passages from her memoir on our website, metroconnection.org. And if you'd like to see Marion reading in person, she'll be at Politics and Prose Saturday afternoon at 3. We have more information about that event on MetroConnection.org, too. Our next story today takes us to the eastern shore of Virginia. It's a quiet, agricultural corner of our region, but one of its small towns is getting a reputation for something other than farming, namely high-quality theater. Coastal reporter Brian Russo takes us to Onancock, Virginia, to check out the latest production at its theater, the North Street Playhouse. The drive from Ocean City to Onancock mostly takes you past farmland. In the summer and fall, you'll see lots of roadside stands with locals selling the bounty of that farmland. But then, once you get to Onancock, you'll find this. You expect me to believe that implicit in everything you've said, that this entire conversation isn't at least partly informed. Am I right by the issue of (coughs) racism? Are you That's a scene from the regional premiere of Bruce Norris's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Claiborne Park, which was recently on stage at the North Street Playhouse in Onancock. It tackles some very heavy subjects, like race, real estate, and people's often volatile values. New York Times called this play darkly humorous, and it is wickedly funny. Here's a scene where the characters try to be politically correct, all while stumbling around their main point, which is... They're uncomfortable with the idea of having a housing project near their neighborhood. If you're placed in some faceless institutional projects, well, I mean, you know, like it or not, that kind of environment is not conducive to, to um, uh, formation of community. It's horrible. What would the effect on children? The North Street Playhouse is the only regularly producing theater on Virginia's eastern shore, 
And over the past quarter century, it's staged 139 different plays for local audiences. Betsy Pinder has been coming to the North Street Playhouse for years. And she says artistic director Terry Bliss is the reason for the theater's success. Terry Bliss, you know, is uh, from her family was part of the Botter Theater. And so she really is the reason this is doing what it's doing. And, and it's been here for the almost 25 or 30 years in tiny, tiny, and now bigger and bigger. Right. And now it's here, and it's just remarkable. Yeah. Could you imagine Onancock without this theater being a part of it? Not really, because it really brings in an art, artistic people that come in and uh, shows that they bring in and it's just really really adds to an Ancock. Terry Bliss basically founded this theater at her kitchen table. She says what the Playhouse has become has surpassed even her wildest hopes and dreams. I came here initially with a job as an attorney at Legal Aid and um, landed in Onancock and I can remember the one of the first times driving down the main street and past the Hopkins house, which is farther down near the water, and thinking that will be the summer residence for the stock company when we do that. So it's always been something that's been in my heart and in my mind. When I had the opportunity to get some people together, and it was around the the, um, kitchen table, it built over the years. We started out going in a lot of different, performing in a lot of different venues. And our first quote unquote permanent home was for North Street around the corner, which was the total building was about 1,300 square feet. And this building, we bought this building in 1999, and it is just under 9,000 square feet. So the size of the stage here, or the audience, is the entire size of the stage and the audience at 4 North Street. One of my goals always was for us to get to a point where people would come and see shows that we produced, even if they hadn't heard of them, because they knew that we were going to get a good, they were going to get a good show. And I think that certainly we have reached that goal. One of the joys for me is always seeing a cast come together as a group and bond and come to depend on one another. So, so have we reached, a, a, you know, the goals? Have we? Uh, probably we have exceeded what I initially thought. I do remember thinking some years ago, it'll be interesting, there were a few things going on, arts-wise and theater-wise, and I thought, it was 95, and I thought, I'm I'm going to be interested to see who's still around in 10 years, Mm -hmm. and here we are, and we are the ones who are still around. So, um, yeah, it is all a uh, work of joy and a work from the heart. That was Terry Bliss of the North Street Playhouse talking with WAMU's Brian Russo. wrap up today's Wild Cards show, we're going to turn to you and read from your messages and letters. Emily Berman's recent story about the 75th anniversary of Langston Terrace, D.C.'s first public housing project, elicited this response from listener Emily Gleichenhaus. 
This was a delightful story, she writes, inspirational and heartening to know of the positive outcomes of successful and thoughtfully executed urban planning. Though the piece was clearly to highlight the physical structure and existence of Langston Terrace, you did the right thing to also feature successful people who were cared for and nurtured by the community that the buildings fostered. We also did a report on Scotland, Maryland, and other kinship communities. Those are neighborhoods settled by freed slaves in the late 1800s. And that story inspired this note from our listener, Eric. He writes, I live off MacArthur Boulevard in Bethesda and often use Seven Locks Road as an alternative to Rockville Pike when driving toward the city of Rockville. Many was the time I'd wondered about the origins of the AME Church and Scotland Townhome Complex on the stretch between Democracy Boulevard and Tuckerman Lane, African-American enclaves in a decidedly white area of the county. Your piece did what Metro Connection always does so well, answered questions, provided context, and entertained by virtue of great writing, editing, and quote selection. And finally, we received a couple more responses to our six-word memoir challenge about life in D.C. Here's the first, searching smartphone when I'm right here. And the second, nothing is better, D.C. on payday. If you have a message you'd like to send us, zap us a note. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Martin DeCaro, and Brian Russo, along with reporters David Schultz and Matt M. Casey. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Robbie Feinberg. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online any old time. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. We hope you can join us next week when we'll put aside our winter woes and bring you a show we're calling Spring Fling. We'll visit the Appalachian Trail and learn how to gear up for hiking all 2,200 miles. We'll hear how the National Arboretum is preserving D.C.'s most famous trees, the flowering cherries. We'll head to Jamaica, in our imaginations anyway, and check out a new musical based on the tunes of Bob Marley. And we'll hit the high seas to catch up with the Maryland family as it sails around the world. I think it's really cool because when you put your hand, my hands are still sort of sparkly with the bioluminescent thingy, Bob's. <laughs> I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. Oh,